0: if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Jude. The book of Jude. We kicked off a series last week called Fighting for Truth in an Age of Deceit. Uh, We started to look really at the groundwork of the book of Jude and we really only covered maybe two or three verses last week and just really looked at who Jude was and how he was the half-brother of Jesus and he was a church leader and what, what he was saying and, and how he wanted to write a completely different letter. And today we're going to dive a little deeper into this book and cover the next couple of verses here in hopes um, in hopes to challenge us a little bit before we come to the Lord's table. Um, ever since the beginning of time, truth has been under attack. God's very words were twisted in the garden of Eden by the serpent. And Eve bought into the lie and then bit into the fruit along with her husband because of that lie. The truth has been under siege ever since. The father of lies works relentlessly to fight against the advancement of the truth. All throughout scripture we come to learn... That Satan is the master of deception and he knows exactly how to sneak lies in amongst the truth. Uh, Now, real quick, how many of you in here uh, would, by just show of hands, uh, say, uh, I have heard of the name Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen. Okay, a few of you, maybe, and as I begin to share it with you who Robert Hansen is, maybe it will trigger something. Robert Hansen was an American former FBI double agent who spied for Soviet Russia uh, against the United States from 1979 until 2001. Hansen sold thousands of classified documents to the KJB that detailed U.S. strategies in the events of nuclear war, He sold them documents about the development of military weapons technology, and he sold the KJB uh, counterintelligence information. Now, this event was described by our Justice Department as possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. For 22 years, Robert Hansen was able to sell private information, classified information he corrupt and ruined so many important aspects of our intelligence community. And he did so by deceptions and lies, by deceptions and lies. And he did it right in front of the FBI and the CIA. And as I was reading about this story, I could not help but think about the scary nature of the events that could occur because of this information being sold into an enemy's hands. But then I had to stop myself because I could not help but think that Satan is far better at corrupting and deceiving and he's much more experienced and skilled than Robert Hansen ever was. The scary thing this morning church is that Satan knows the church's weakness and he will never give up it's no wonder that we have this very short book here in the bible where Jude is telling Christians you must earnestly contend for the faith now if you would look with me at Jude and we're going to be in verses three and four this morning he says beloved Remember, remember, we looked at this last week. He used a term of endearment speaking to people that he loved. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designed for this condemnation ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ now there's a lot here in these two verses alone but Jude is warning believers in the strongest possible terms that there is a problem in the church there was a problem then and there's a problem today and it's the exact same problem he does not set out, Jude does not set out here going into specific detail of the corrupt things that were being taught. All he says is, I want to help you understand what we're supposed to be looking for. The reality is this, church, if you're a note taker, I want you to write this down. The most dangerous battle for truth takes place inside the church. The most dangerous battle for truth takes place inside the church. There are spiritual terrorists that are at work and they must be exposed and eradicated for truth to triumph. You notice several things here as you read this letter of Jude. You know Jude's initial desire was to speak about a common salvation, yet he is so moved by the Holy Spirit that he changed his entire letter and he calls Christians to contend. Remember, last week we looked at the word contend, and it was the same word that would be used in a wrestling type setting to agonize over something. And so, Jude is saying, Christian, (laughs) agonize over the truth. Unfortunately, we are here this morning, and so many church attenders and so many church leaders here in our Western culture have become careless with the truth. They've become careless. And Jude is saying, church leader, Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, you must not get careless. He's warning them that these men and women have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in unnoticed. You know, in part, this is why they are so dangerous. They came in unnoticed. That's why they're dangerous. You know, that term crept in here means to slip in secretly as if using the side door. Crept in. No one noticed that they were dangerous. Nobody at all. They didn't, they didn't come in with some flashy danger false teacher name tag around their neck when they came into the church. They didn't. Satan knows, Charles Spurgeon said. Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more damage than a thousand devils outside of its walls. We have to remember something this morning about an apostate or one who walks in apostasy. They're one who will voice that they believe in truth, yet they deny him by the way that they live. This entire letter to the church then and to the church now is about that very thing about false Christians, people who say, I'm a follower, I believe in Jesus, but their life denies his lordship. They hear truth, they acknowledge truth, they understand truth, but in the end, they never accept it. They reject the truth, but they will often still come inside the church, and these certain people have a destiny that Jude says. And I'm gonna cover this in in a little bit later but this destiny is this, that they are marked for what Jude calls this condemnation. And it's enough to say that these are ungodly men and women. They're ungodly simply in the sense that they are not like God. And no matter what their outward appearance looks like, they disregard God in their life. You know, the idea here in the text that Jude is using carries with it the idea that they stayed within the fabric of the church with evil intent. They came in on purpose with evil intent. They are corrupt. They want to crush the church. They're deceivers. They despise truth. And they were unnoticed by the believers and by the church leaders. They were unnoticed. I love, though, that they were unnoticed by God. They were not unnoticed by God. They didn't slip past God. The Lord was not wringing his hands in heaven, worrying about those who deceive others through their teaching and through their lifestyle. They, they may be hidden to the believer, but as far as God concerned, their condemnation was already marked out for them. It was marked out for them meaning that their judgment is assured because of their behavior. You know, the, the truth I've come to learn in this life, um, I'm 33 years old and, and I prayed for salvation and began to seek the Lord when I was a small child. And I've learned in that time that the truth will always win out. The truth will always win out. Always But it's our responsibility as believers to be on that side of truth. To be on the side of truth. I've been pastoring here for a few weeks shy of two years. And the truth has been delivered here in this church every week since I took over standing in this pulpit. We have received truth. Now we must accept it. We must accept it. We must apply it to our lives. And I I just want to pause for just a moment before I go any farther. If you're a Christian in here this morning, I want you to lay aside your cell phone, to put down your notes and your pens. And I want you to just look right up here for a moment. I've been wrestling with whether or not I should even say this. But church, I believe wholeheartedly that the Holy Spirit has been bringing this up over and over and over in my mind the last week. Church, when there is an enemy at the gate, the watchman cannot sleep. When there is an enemy at the gate, the watchman cannot sleep. We cannot sleep on our post, church, because we are at war. We are at war every single day. The truth is being rejected and is being twisted and people are buying into the lie if you are a follower of jesus christ don't fall asleep on your post don't fall asleep we have to contend for the truth because it is being it is being lost as though it seems from the human perspective but we know in the end the truth is what will win out The truth is what will win out. Church, Christian, in here, I want you to write this down. If you are a Christian, this life is a battleground, not a playground. This life is a battleground, not a playground. There are certain people, there are certain people who have received something of the grace of God. And when they receive it, they turn it into excuse for their own perversion. They turn it into an excuse for their own perversion. And the idea behind this word sensuality here in verse number four is sin that is practiced without shame, without any sense of conscience or even decency. This word is usually used in the sense of sexual immorality of some sort. But it's also used in the sense of brazen, anti-biblical teaching. Brazen and when the truth is denied and lies are taught without shame or they're embraced without shame, that's what sensuality here is in the text. And Jude is saying both of these things are occurring in our churches and in our culture. And because of this rest, the rest of this letter will begin to develop for us, we will soon see that people who called themselves Christian not only had a moral, a moral decay in their life, But they also had a doctrinal decay. They strayed from truth. They no longer believed what the Bible taught. And I want to just pause for a moment. I want to pause for another moment and I want to address something here. These words in in verses 3 and 4 show that there is a danger in preaching and teaching solely on the topic of grace. Solely now please don't hear what I'm not saying there are some there are some who take the truths of God's grace and they turn the grace of our God into sensuality an excuse for sinfulness but that does not mean just just hear me out that does not mean there is anything wrong or dangerous about the message of God's grace. There's nothing wrong or dangerous about it, but Jude just shows us simply how corrupt the human heart truly is. I love what the Old Testament prophet said. He said, the heart is wicked. The heart is wicked above all else. Who could know it? Man, such a scary picture. Really? A scary picture of what can happen when we reject truth. Because of the wickedness of man's heart, when we reject truth, we twist it and pervert it to fit our own agenda. Our own agenda. There are certain people here in Jude, there are certain people here in our culture and our society that have denied the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do it by refusing to recognize who Jesus is and who he was. And when they do this, they also deny the Father. And what the Father's words are laid out for us. They deny them with their ungodly living, and they deny them with their heretical doctrine, their embracing and teaching of, of antithetical teachings of Christ, things that are are different or opposite of what is true. As long as I am the pastor here, we will stay committed to truth, and I'm asking you as a church body to stay committed to truth with me. We have been entrusted with the truth, and the truth must be taught in every aspect in every discipleship group, in every children's ministry event and activity, in every Bible study, in every men's meeting, in every women's, every teen's, everything, the truth must be taught. I've also come to realize in this life that we will not drift towards Christ's likeness. We will not just drift into displaying the Holy Spirit's fruit in our life. That will not happen. We must teach the truth. We must model the truth with our life the church is only one generation away from extinction church statistically speaking here in america we are one generation away from christianity being extinct right here in our own communities right on our own front porches christianity is one generation away we cannot afford to give up any more ground we cannot afford to concede. The truth must be taught and must be caught and it must be committed to ourselves and to others in our circle of influence. I want you to look at this verse on the screen. Paul wrote to Timothy. He says, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men. Who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Second Timothy two, two and three. This this scripture, if you would kind of hang tight on that verse for just a moment, these couple of verses right here were such an important encouragement. Paul knew that the Christian would need strength and endurance to fulfill the calling that God placed on their life. God, man, I don't know about you guys, but there are some things that I come across in Scripture and I get so jazzed up. Like I I get overwhelmingly uh, probably annoying to my wife um, at times. Um, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, did you see this? this is this so cool? And my wife's like, yeah, yeah. Have you ever gotten excited about something and you shared it with somebody else and they were not enthusiastic? Not at all. That's how I, this, this right here, this right here causes great encouragement in my life. I don't know where you are today. I don't know where, where church found you this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life over the last several weeks But I want you to know God is always there to give you strength. God is always there to give you strength. I love what Isaiah says. He says he gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. Man, and when you feel tired, when you feel tired, when you feel like you've got nothing left in you, man, I felt that way coming to church this morning. Man, I just don't have anything left in me this morning. And I was reminded that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. But I've also come to realize that that strength does not come as we sit back passively and we suppose that God's just going to simply pour it out onto us. God brings strength when we seek him. God brings strength when we rely upon him instead of our own selves. Anybody else ever rely on yourself and it got you nowhere fast? We have to remember the truths of God's word this morning as they are taught to us. We must stand on the sufficiency of the scriptures and we must saturate our minds every day with the words of of scripture, of truth. We must be committed to knowing more about the Bible than we do anything else. Nothing else should consume more of our mind than the words that are written right here in this book that we so freely have access to. There was a time when I was a teenager and I I wasn't always uh, in my life making great decisions. And I I remember at different times and points in my life where my mom would make a comment about something that we would be walking through the house and we'd be singing some secular song that was so not edifying for my mind, so not edifying for anybody else. And my mom would throw out this little phrase, does that glorify God? And I don't know if she was, if she was thinking about it when she said it, but it always made me stop and reflect on something. What I feed my mind will come out of my mouth. And as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. If I am saturating my thoughts with everything of the world, with with this truth and that truth and their truth and her truth and my truth, guess what's going to come out of me? Everything that is antithetical of God. Everything that is opposite of what God's truth is. But church, when we saturate our mind with the words found in this book, man... You should see the path that your walk looks like. Hmm. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow. Narrow is the way that leads to Christ. And few, few will walk it. Few. Man, that's scary. That's a scary thought. Our capacity for learning and our commitment to truth is vital if Christianity is ever going to survive beyond us. We must see and know truth. We must search the scriptures. That way we can spot lies and spot those who promote those lies. We must be able to recognize a counterfeit In this life. You know the best way to detect a lie? Know the truth. Know the truth. To spot a counterfeit we have to know what is true and what is genuine. And Jude gives us insight into one who walks in apostasy. Look at verse number 4 again. He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says that they were condemned. That God has pronounced damnation on all those who walk in apostasy. They are under his condemnation. Despite what they do, they are damned, is what what Jude says. These individuals have chosen apostasy, and they have done so in willful disobedience to truth. Do you know, if you read the, the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, In every age, from the beginning of time until where we currently are, God has pronounced damnation on those who lead others away from God. He's pronounced it from the beginning of time. He says that they have done so by ungodly characters. And while some may claim to be of God, ultimately their life is ungodly. ungodly. They're false teachers. They are false worshipers. They pervert the grace of God, meaning there is no real reverence in their life. There is no adoration for God. There's no love for God. Look at verse 15, because he kind of unpacks us a little further. He says, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are the grumblers, the malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our lord jesus christ they said to you in the last times there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions you can tell a lot about a person when you look at their character you can tell a lot about a person by their character look at how a person lives look at what look at what a person does See how they interact with their spouse. See where they go. See who they hang out with. Talk with them about what they watch on TV or what they listen to. Observe how a person responds to pressure and problems and pain because that's when the character is going to come out. Someone once told me several years ago early on in ministry that Christians are like tea bags. You don't know what's inside of them until they're in hot water. And that's so true, is it not? It's so true. I have a question, though, for us this morning. Who in your life, who in your life do you know that has godly character? Who do you know? Who has depth in their relationship with God? Who? I'm not talking about intellectual depth though that's important in some aspects. That's, but that's not what I'm talking about, right? I'm not talking about ability or talent. Those are fine, but who has deep character? Who has Christ's likeness in their life? Who has that evidence? In the end, our character is what will come to the surface. And the one who walks in apostasy is ungodly at their very core. When the character of a man is ungodly and he is wicked, deep, Within and he's unregenerate, his conduct is always evil. Always is evil. They take grace and they make an excuse for sin and wickedness. What's even scarier is the fact that the one who walks in apostasy is one who is unrestrained. They've silenced the voice of the Holy Spirit. And when you have, when you have an unredeemed person... You have unrestrained flesh. When you have an unredeemed person, you have unrestrained flesh. I want you to write this down if you're a Christian. I want you to, to, to tattoo this on your mind. The only thing keeping the flesh in check is the Holy Spirit. The only thing keeping the flesh in check is the, the Holy Spirit. The idea here is that when most people sin, their conscience seeks to conceal what they have done, and they have feelings of guilt and shame. They have some respect for common decency, but what Jude is saying is that the apostate, the one who walks in apostasy, is arrogant and loud about their sin. Arrogant and loud. They flaunt their shamefulness and make light of their so-called liberties. You know what's scary? Is that the Old Testament prophets spoke something to the Israelites and he said, you've forgotten how to blush, Israel. You've forgotten how to blush. Nothing embarrasses you anymore. And the flesh was in total control of these people. Man. Church. Christian. Follower of God in this place. Friend. Your character dictates your conduct. Your character dictates your conduct. And so, who's calling the shots in your life? Who's calling the shots? Who's got control of you? Is it you? Is it your spouse? your children, your grandchildren? Is it your addiction? Or is it God? Well, pastor, why are you asking us these hard questions while we're in church? Because we have to answer those questions honestly. We have to answer them honestly Because if we profess the name of Jesus, then we have to stay yielded to him. We have to stay yielded to him. I love what the scripture says. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's weak. And when we live in the flesh, please don't miss this, church. When we live in the flesh, we deny Christ. When we live in the flesh, we deny Christ And a denial of Christ refuses to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus in our life. And a denial of Christ shows that I have no respect for God or his authority in my life. Paul wrote to another young man in the New Testament, a man named Titus. And he says this, it's going to hit the screen, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and their conscience, don't miss this, they're defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul is talking about people who profess Christianity. He's talking about people who profess followership of Jesus Christ. He's talking about people who have that I said a prayer one time. Paul's talking about the people that that say, "Well, I believe." Yeah, so did the demons. The profession looks in order in the life of one who walks in apostasy. But in works, they deny him. You know, we can't just go by what a person says. We have to look at how they live. And that verse, could you go back to that verse for me real quick? These verses here on the screen. In fact, that, in that entire chapter of Titus was such strong words that Paul used. Paul was saying, I mean it, Christian. These so-called Christians pretend to have a higher spirituality than any other person. But Paul is saying, I see right through that spiritual facade. And Christian, I'm calling you to do the same. I'm calling you to see through it, to see the fake You know the word abominable here on the screen? That word abominable has the idea in the Greek, the original Greek is one who is polluted by idolatry. Polluted by idolatry. And what's even worse than that is the word disqualified there in that last line. It comes from the Greek word adakimos, and it means three different things. It was a word that was used to describe a counterfeit coin, it was a, use, a word used to describe a candidate who was rejected as an elected official. And the last one, and this is, this is one that just rattled my brain, Araquimos, disqualified. This word was used to describe a cowardly soldier who failed in battle. They would not take a stand. And so they failed. Men and women who have denied Christ with their actions, pervert the doctrine of grace. They seek to destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but perhaps the hardest part is that they don't often appear dangerous until the damage is already done. I think that's why we have to heed the warning of Jude. Earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly contend. our prayer has been leading up to this series that we would hear the clear warnings and that we would know how to spot counterfeits in our life. The truth must not just be something that we know by way of study, but it must be something that we strive to live out every single day. Our lives, church, are a testimony to the truth. And how we live denies or defends what we claim to believe. I'm going to say it again, and, and if you're a note taker, it's on the screen. Our lives are a testimony to the truth, and how we live, it denies or defends what we claim to believe. And so here we are this morning on another Sunday in which we are able to gather freely to worship God and to hear truth. And we've seen here in scripture this awful picture of one who says I'm a Christian and yet I deny that very thing by the way I live my life. And in just a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to come to the Lord's table as a, as a moment in time to remember the life that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. The body that was beaten and scourged and hung upon a cross for our sinfulness. A remembrance of the body that was laid in the tomb and arose, victoriously arose gave some final words, encouragement and challenge, and then ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father until that time when he comes back. We are commanded in Scripture to take time to remember. But there's something in Scripture that I need to point out to us because it ties in clearly with what I've been talking about today. I want to read to you. You don't have to turn there but I want to read to you a few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But there's, there's a part here. Paul goes on to tell them how you're supposed to do this. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And this is where I want to pause for just a moment. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let every man examine himself. I think in just a moment the music is going to come on and I'm going to ask you to get out of your seats and to come down here to the front And get one of these communion cups. And before we do that. I want to challenge you with something. Because really the the challenge is, is this church. Does the life that I live deny or defend what I claim to believe? Does it deny or defend? If we're sitting in this room this morning. And we profess with our mouth. To be Christians. That we have prayed to receive God's grace in our life. If we profess that, then does my life, does my life defend or deny those words? And this examination that we are going to have here in just a moment should be just that. God, search me and know me. If there's any wicked way within me, God, remove it, purge that from my life. If I live in this life and I'm denying you by the way that I live, God, change me, mold me, shape me to be more like your son. And if you're in here and you're saying, Holy Spirit, if there is something in my life, make me more like you. And if you don't believe that the Holy Spirit is pointing to something, don't pat yourself on the back. You bow even lower in humility, saying, God, who can I help? And so, church, I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. Does my life defend or deny Jesus Christ? Um, If you would, go ahead and start playing that song. And as soon as the music starts playing, you can just get out of your seat and come right to the front. He should give his only son. And I would just ask that you would stay in an attitude so of take prayer. A treasure.
1: How great the pain of searing loss! The Father turns his face. Wounds which mother chosen one bring many sons to glory.
0: I would ask you to please refrain from pulling your plastic top off at this time. This is a time of reflection. There are two focal points as we partake this morning of the Lord's Supper. There are two symbols that have no saving power in and of themselves. The first is the bread, which is a symbol of the body of Christ. The text here says that Christ's body was broken for us. What this means is that just as bread gives life to the body physically, Christ gave his body for us so that we might have life spiritually. The Bible describes Christ as the bread of life in John chapter 6. So when we gather and we take the bread of the Lord's table and we break it and we pass it amongst ourselves, we are reminding ourselves that Jesus is our life, that he is the one by whom we live. It was Paul who said in Galatians chapter 2, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which now I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what the bread symbolizes. That he, Jesus, is to be our power by which we, we obey the commands of God. That he, Jesus, is our power to follow the word of God. He, Jesus, is our power to love one another and to forgive one another. To be tender and merciful and merciful. Kind and courteous to one another, to not return evil for evil, but to pray for those who persecute us and misuse us. It is Christ's life in us that enables us to be what God is calling us to be. We live by means of Christ. And the second is the cup. This symbolizes the blood. The blood which he said is the blood of the new covenant. The new arrangement for living that God has made by which the old life has ended. The blood is the end of a life and the old life in which we were dependent upon ourselves and we lived for ourselves and wanted only to be the center of attention and that life is now over and that's what the cup means. We agree that we no longer live for ourselves but we now live for Christ. And when we take this cup and we drink it we're publicly proclaiming that we agree with the sentence of death upon our old life. And we believe that the Christian life is a continual experience of life coming out of death. It is the bread that gives new life and it is the blood by which the new life flows in and through us. So as we come today, we remember that Christ gave his life so that we might have new life and live in new life. So as a family, just like they did in the Bible, we eat together. And as we see here in the text, Jesus broke the bread and he said that this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. And in the same way, he also took his cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink. If we go back to the Gospels, we realize that following the Lord's Supper, they sang songs together as they exited that place. And so I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up at this time. And we would like to close in a song here in just a moment. Heavenly Father, we just thank you. We thank you, God, for what you did for sending your son. That he would live upon this earth with a sinless life, but that he would give his life up for us. So that we can be reconciled to you, that we can live peaceably with you. And and I can't even imagine and fathom the, the punishment and the torture that he endured for our sins. It was was my sin that held him there like that song was just singing. And my name could easily be called out among the scoffers, but yet your grace has been made sufficient in our lives. And we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood and the broken body. Thank you for the example. Thank you for your truth that challenges us and encourages us and brings life to our dead and broken bodies. And God the only thing that we have left to do is to to live for you. Genuinely and authentically live for you and so God I'm asking that you would give us strength as we depart from here in just a few moments. And before we leave God give us a voice to lift your name high in this place. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your grace and love and mercy in this life. And dare I say, God, even so come. Even so come, God, do not tarry. Do not tarry. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And amen. I'm going to ask, if you would...